Welcome to this Whit Kiefer conversation, diversity, equity, and inclusion in not-for-profits, discussion with foundation leaders. My name is Julie Rosen, and I lead Whit Kiefer's not-for-profit practice. Issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion have always been important to not-for-profits, and especially foundations who serve these communities. When the COVID-19 pandemic arrived early in 2020, it presented unique and significant challenges to not-for-profits' abilities to serve their constituents, especially people of color and underrepresented minorities. Among the challenges are diverse and underserved communities were by far the hardest hit by the pandemic. According to some statistics, areas in which the population was substantially non-white experienced infection rates and death rates many times higher when compared to areas that are predominantly white. Um, even in high income locations, people of color have been disproportionately impacted. We've seen that both anecdotally and from the statistics. Beyond these immediate impacts, there has been a corresponding toll in relation to homelessness, food insecurity, and other social determinants of health and wellness. According to the Centers for Disease Control, factors that lead to increased risk for racial and ethnic minorities include discrimination, health access and utilization, occupation, education and wealth gaps, and housing, among many. One major outstanding question is whether these communities will receive an equitable, dis equitable distribution of the coming coronavirus uh, vaccines, and will uh, these communities take those vaccines and, pro and protect themselves? More broadly, will communities who have been disproportionately impacted receive a greater proportion of future aid and assistance? There are many outstanding questions and uncertainties. What is certain is that COVID has placed an inordinate burden upon the agencies, charities, and foundations who support these communities. When diverse individuals and communities suffer, the not-for-profits who support them are strained. And some estimates say that one third of not-for-profits will not survive the economic and funding impacts of the pandemic, and that's just awful. In this context, today's program will look at the role of not-for-profit foundations in the COVID era, which are at the heart of ensuring DEI in today's society. And we are extremely, extremely fortunate to have three experienced and respected foundation leaders with us for a substantive discussion on this topic. First, Kiana Thomason, who is the president and CEO of the Health Forward Foundation. The mission of this foundation is to provide leadership, advocacy, and resources in order to eliminate barriers and promote quality healthcare for the uninsured and underserved in the Kansas City region. Kiana has dedicated her career to the improvement of health and wellness with a special focus on communities with significant health disparities. She was previously Vice President, Community Health and Health Equity for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Kansas City. And prior to that has spent eight years at Swope Health as the Director of Clinical Operations, Behavioral Health and Program Manager of the Multi-Municipality Mental Health Court. She also served as Deputy Director of Health and Human Services Liaison for United States Senator Jean Carnahan. Second, William Buster, who is the Senior VP of of impact for Dogwood Health Trust. Dogwood Health Trust is one of the largest community foundations in the country, and William is responsible for the visioning, development, and implementation of the ambitious program strategies 
for transforming the health and well-being of all of the communities in Western North Carolina. William most recently served as the Executive Vice President of Community Investments for the St. David's Foundation in Austin, Texas, where he provided oversight for the foundation's grant-making programs and the mobile dental program, and was responsible for leading the design, development, and evaluation of the foundation's grant-making strategies and policies. Prior to that, he founded Common Unity Philanthropic and Not-for-Profit Advisors. He has also worked for two other well-respected philanthropies, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation. Last, but certainly not least, is Mary Skeleton Roberts, who is the co-director of climate for the Bauer Foundation, which is located in Boston. The mission of the Bauer Foundation includes being both stewards, helping to enhance vital community assets and catalysts, helping to advance breakthrough ideas that will shape the future. In her role, Mary focuses her time on transportation and land use, two, two critical levers for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Her portfolio aims to modernize our transit systems and to help communities transform themselves into more walkable, connected places. Prior to joining Byron in 2009, Mary was a consultant specializing in problem solving and dispute resolution of complex corporate environmental and public policy issues. She has worked extensively with not-for-profit government and private sector clients in the United States and internationally. And she currently serves on the National Board of Hispanics and Philanthropy and the Funders Network for Smart Growth and Livable Communities. So again, Kiana, William, Mary, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. So let's jump right into our discussion. So my first question, um, could you please describe your journey in the foundation world and what you learned along the way that you believe helped shape your leadership? So I'm gonna call on Kiana, uh, William and Mary to go in that order. Okay, thank you, uh, Julie, for that introduction. And it's a pleasure to share virtual space with Mary and William today. Uh, so my journey in philanthropy began uh, this year in January, 2021, six weeks before the pandemic hit. Uh, so nothing like a public health crisis to welcome you and orient you very quickly to uh, public health philanthropy. Um, so, you know, in, in my mind, how it's really shaped uh, my journey thus far is really uh, making me reflect very thoughtfully uh, and collaboratively with board and staff and our community stakeholders about what philanthropy is really called to do. And I think uh, one of the principal challenges of foundations is to do this toggle between aid uh, and addressing the issues and the complexities that really will lift people out of the situations that they're in. And the shared uh, experience of who Health Forward serves uh, is poverty. Uh, and we know that uh, poverty is really underpinned uh, by income and wealth inequality and structural racism. And so uh, we will be at Health Forward focusing on those root cause factors as we uh, move forward. And that is really the essence uh, of what philanthropy, <clears throat> excuse me, is purpose to do is to focus on those root cause factors. So we'll be exploring how we best do that uh, all of 2021 but there's nothing like the injustices that we've seen in this crisis, where we see laid bare the um, issues 
um, around education disparities, income disparities, access to health. Um, so all of those injustices really crystallized for us uh, and our, our community the need to go further upstream. Thanks, Kiana. William? My, my journey has been quite interesting. I've, I've been in philanthropy now for about 20 years and uh, I got into it uh, as a challenge. Um, I had been working in nonprofits and leading programs for young people throughout North Carolina and the Southeast. And I never understood why philanthropy made the decisions that it made because I know I ran the best programs and never got the funding that I thought I deserved. And so I went for an interview because I wanted to ask questions of a foundation. And uh, I went to the foundation of Mary Rose Babcock Foundation, went to the interview just with uh, a desire to ask questions. I didn't think I would get the job. And they offered me the job after about two, three hour uh, interviews. Uh, and I was actually surprised and, and, and met with the decision that I had to make uh, about joining a foundation. I didn't know what it was. I didn't have, I had no idea what philanthropy did. Um, and I took the opportunity because of a couple of reasons. One, um, because the, the Babcock Foundation was intentional. They were very intentional about finding young people of color uh, in the South uh, to help them move their work forward. And that their work was to improve the lives and well-being of all uh, uh, Southeasterners, especially those of color. Um, and then two, that they wanted to do that in partnership with the communities across the Southeast. And so um, that is actually what has shaped my experience. Um, I have found that uh, you have to be intentional in your work in philanthropy. You, it's not good enough to, to have um, uh, missions that you're focusing on communities of color or low-income folks. If, you're, if you don't have the representation inside the organization, there's always going to be a hole in your strategies. And so the, the Babcock Foundation taught me that, um, is that intentionality around engagement and inclusion is something that you have to practice. And that has been something that has driven my work all the years that I've done it. And when I, as I progressed in the field and, and got an opportunity to lead work and to be the heads of parts of foundations, uh, that's always been my intention is to make sure that my staff, the staff that I work with uh, represent the communities and represent the folks that, that we care most about. Uh, the second, uh, uh, being engaging uh, with the communities. Again, uh, you have a hole in your strategy if you don't know how to listen to the communities and the partners in which you work with. Um, and for me, it, it, it's been one of the cornerstones of, of my work. Whenever I, I bring teams on, bring teams together or work with organizations, uh, one of the first questions I always ask is, what's your network? What are your relationships? Um, this work is unsuccessful if you don't understand the power of the networks in which you are connected with or disconnected from. Um, and so um, uh, that's a cornerstone of my work as well. So uh, intentionality around engagement, and relationship development and network bolstering are, are, are ways in which my uh, career has kind of progressed over the years. Thanks, William. Mary? Hi. Well, first of all, thank you, Julie, for hosting this wonderful panel. And it's a pleasure to be on the panel with you, Kiana, and you, William. Um, my, my sort of journey through philanthropy almost feels like a natural progression. I spent many, many years working with it within the city of Boston doing issues of development and economic opportunity, spent even longer as an international consultant really in the nexus and looking at this space between 
sort of, you know, building consensus, really engaging the public in a meaningful way, and then trying to achieve the kind of outcomes that Kiana, you talked about that really have an impact on the ground. Um, almost like you, William, I went, you know, somebody sent me the job description at the Bar Foundation and truth be told, I had no idea what the Bar Foundation was, but what, what I saw that they were looking for interested me. They were looking for somebody that could build consensus, someone that really knew how to engage with community at a deep level, and somebody that understood the intersectionality of the kind of issues they were trying to address. I've now been at the foundation almost 12 years. And one of the things I've learned more than anything is that regardless of whether you are funding climate, public health, art, there's an intersectionality to the work. And if you're able to frame the work in a way that appeals and that resonates with different stakeholders, you end up being able to have different nonprofits, the private sector, different um, agencies within government all working to solve those problems almost at a systems level and you really do need to attack these issues at a systems level because if we know anything about either policy or racism it's systems right and so we're always looking at if i focus on transportation and that's a lot of the work i do at the foundation i often ask myself transportation is not just about reducing greenhouse gases it's a public health issue it's an economic opportunity issue. It's a well-being issue. It's a community development issue. And by framing it that broadly, we've been able to really engage lots of different stakeholders. So I think that's like one of my headlines. It's really important to understand that regardless of where you fit in the ecosystem, it's knowing you're operating in an ecosystem and really creating some space for partners to engage at whatever, at whatever, wherever in the ecosystem they fit. I love that. I, I, I love that uh, that word, Mary, intersectionality. Can you maybe give us an example of that? And I, I'd love to hear from Kian and William, too, if you approach your work that way as well. Yeah. So when we saw COVID hit, when we talk about intersectionality, we had been funding a lot of our nonprofits to look at issues around climate. We'd been funding them to look at issues around transportation. And what we saw during COVID is that those same organizations that were that we were funding to do climate, when COVID hit, they were your frontline organizations, making sure that people got food, making sure that health centers were testing people. They were able to pivot and not just pivot, but understand that their work crossed those different dimensions. And so when I talk about intersectionality, I fund them to do climate work, but I understand it's much broader than that. And so within the foundation, also needing to have the kind of flexibility that we say, we know they're gonna get our climate outcomes because they're focused on it, but we also wanna support some of that other work because it strengthens the organization so that they can be both adaptive, flexible, but your first line of defense when you have issues like COVID and other emergencies or, or, or problems or crises that emerge in community. That's great, Mary. Um, William, example of, of that maybe? Do you, do you agree with that? Um, yes. Yeah, I do actually. Um, I always, uh, many years ago when I started supporting work around education, uh, I found that oftentimes the, we were more focused on uh, schools, buildings, uh, instead of children. I say children don't live in schools. They don't live in, they don't live in houses. They live in communities with families. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, you have to understand the, the intersectionality. I think one of the best things that, that I've seen uh, of late was some work that we we're supporting at the St. David's Foundation around women uh, and women of color and women-led households. And what we found was, is that 
uh, in supporting the work around women-led households, we found that that we uh, we uh, we had an emphasis on seniors, and we, we found that many of those uh, women-led households were dealing with parents that were now uh, seniors and having to deal with the issues that come with aging. And so, uh, having women being the nexus of both uh, uh, aging parents and children who were experiencing disproportionality and inequities in schools, we found that we had to focus on families as a whole. And so uh, the work for, for women became work for families and with the strand of saying children, mothers and aging parents um, as a core. And so you, there, there's no way in which you can disconnect when you're, when you're dealing with people, people's lives are intersections. Um, and if you don't understand that, then, then uh, you know, for me, it, it doesn't make any sense, the philanthropy that we do oftentimes when we just say we're gonna focus on this thing. Uh, our, our, the lives that people lead are so uh, woven together that if you don't pay attention to all aspects of lives, um, then you're gonna miss out on the opportunity to really shift the work that's happening within people's families. Mm -hmm. great, great example. Kiana? Yeah, I agree with all that they've shared. Um, I think that COVID is the best illustrative, if you will, and the best storyteller um, about the intersectionality uh, between our life systems. Uh, we've seen that people of color um, are dying at disproportionate rates of two to three times the rate of our white counterparts in the pandemic. And, you know, early on, we talked about how, you know, African Americans and people of color had higher levels of comorbidities. Uh, and um, that is true in some regards. Uh, but we, when we really began to step back and peel back the onion as a nation, we began to see stories emerge about the underlying root causes that have placed um, African Americans and other people of color, including natives. There's an untold story around natives in this pandemic and, and, and as well as other immigrants and refugees um, around all these societal outcomes uh, where we are historically and current day um, faring far worse than our white counterparts. So disparities in education and educational outcomes uh, and access to high quality schools, uh, disparities of course in our interactions and frequency and death at the hands of law enforcement, disparities in housing uh, and affordable access to housing disparities in income and wealth, uh, there's a, a significant chasm, I won't even call it a gap, uh, between color uh, and white counterparts. Um, so as foundations, we have to think in systems, in an interconnected systems, and we use our, both our grant making and our advocacy uh, through policy advocacy, at least how Ford Foundation does, to address these things on a systemic level. Uh, we recently um, released our uh, biennial policy agenda that will really focus more upstream on the social and political influences of health because we recognize that every policy, I don't care whether it's transportation, infrastructure, agriculture, housing, education, every policy either builds equity in to a system and a community or it builds inequity in. 
Uh, we are in conversation with uh, our mayor and city council in our health department about engaging around a health and race in all policies uh, structure to lay across uh, decision-making in our community. Uh, Kansas City recently approved zero fare transit, which is significant. So you talk about transportation being an enabler to childcare and an enabler to workforce development, to life. Uh, people need to move. Uh, and we know so much of who we serve depends on our public uh, metro bus system. So Kansas City is one of the first cities or is the first city to pass zero fare transit. That's building equity in. Um, so that decision uh, is building equity into our systems. And so that's the level of interconnectedness that we need to plan around uh, from a policymaking perspective because you really can't grant make your way uh, to equity at any uh, significant level. So it's really about policy for health forward uh, as I know um, Mary and William can probably agree to in their experiences as well. Interesting, very interesting, Kiana. Okay, so starting with Mary, my next question is, um, and my obvious question is how have the pandemic and the events surrounding the death of George Floyd shaped or changed the work of your foundation? Yeah, great question. So well prior to the George Floyd murder and everything we've seen play out in the last year and beyond that um, and before that, the foundation had embarked on a diversity, equity and inclusion sort of work. And what we recognized is the DEI actually has to start internal. So we did a whole organizational assessment where everyone in the organization was assessed and really be able to understand where do you fit along the spectrum. And then there was sort of a, a piece of work done that began to identify where does the organization or the foundation fit as well. And we used that benchmark to really help us understand how do we become, how do we address our own biases? How do we then work towards looking at our grant making? And there's so much in philanthropy that is biased. And I'll say that in the example I mean by that is who gets the grant, the, the way the grant is written, the way the program officer interprets capacity, right, at the nonprofit, and being able to unpack a lot of those biases. I mean, and even myself as an Afro-Latina woman, I mean, I, not shocked because I wasn't shocked, but surprised even I carry biases. Certain schools have a little bit more weight for me than others, or certain connections have a little bit more weight, and needing to lift those things up so that when we are doing our grant making, we are asking ourselves, are we distributing our grant making to the organizations, again, that are frontline, that are serving the communities that we hope that, you know, that we want to see the change happen. And when we are not doing that, what is our responsibility of providing additional capacity? And sometimes the capacity really looks like more dollars. Oftentimes it can be providing consultants that can help grow an organization or help them think differently, but really working with those grantees to understand not just what their challenges are, but what do they need for us to be able to deliver the services they need to do on the ground. So we've done a lot of that work internally. And to Kiana's point, you can't train your way out of racism or injustice, you actually have to practice it. So as a foundation, we've also instituted these learning action groups that's giving us the muscle to ask, you know, in working groups, solving problems across the organization 
um, asking ourselves where, who is most affected by a particular policy, if it's an internal policy, who's marginalized, and then be able to begin to unpack policy, one policy at a time. And I can tell you that I think VAR is probably one of the only foundations across the country that has done a DEI assessment of its human resource policy. So we've done the work internally and are doing the work with grant making. Within our climate program, we're applying an equi a racial equity lens on all of our grant making to really help us understand where are our grantees and be able to move them along as well. Because ultimately we wanna become a non-racist organization and we, we like have to lean into it and it's an everyday, unforgiving, nonstop work, but it is absolutely worth it at the end. That's, that's incredible, Mary, thank you. William? Uh, the so my my experience spans two different foundations. Um, right. The beginning of the pandemic and now uh, as I transition <laughs> to, to North Carolina, I I think for me it has been um, uh, I've learned that um, you can have allies where you didn't think that there were allies to be had, and I think one of the things that that this the, the experience has had, and and I, you know I, I've spoken to many of my, my colleagues, uh, African-American and other minorities in, in the field of philanthropy, is that uh, there's a sense of feeling like, okay, now I'm being heard. Uh, uh, all that we've seen, the disparities, the inequities that the pandemic exposed, um, um, the, the, the realities for how it is for many uh, men of color and people, women of color, uh, and as they are engaged by law enforcement, was something that we all knew. And we and many of us have lived, and and now uh, it seems as if the conversation is able to be had in, in a way in which we couldn't do just a year ago. Um, I've been at this for a long time, and the way in which we've had to talk about equity and diversity is around this or underneath something, and fund this little thing over here that I, I like, and and hopefully that someone else inside the organization will like it, but not in a way that was transformative. Um, where the organization from top to bottom, the philanthropy from top to bottom, began to kind of struggle with this. And what I've seen um, is for uh, uh, both with, with uh, both with St. David's and the Dogwood Trust is that it's become core. Um, uh, the, the, we, we love data in health philanthropy and the data speaks loudly about the inequities and way, in ways in which people are experiencing things, experiencing uh, health, uh, access to healthcare, experiencing uh, uh, their their their, their um, kind of journey through healthcare, uh, how they're treated when they're in uh, a doctor's care, how they are are being treated in, in educational settings. The data is absolutely clear, and now we can have a different conversation. And so, um, for for us at Dogwood, um, um, what I'm most proud of as I as I come into this organization is the board's explicit um, acceptance of equity as a core body of work that. Every question that we, every body of work that we will do, we will have to filter it through an equity lens. Um, and I'm um, um, being asked to kind of lead that process and, and working directly with the board uh, in this process. So, so when when boards begin to kind of own this, which is what many of us have been trying to do for many many years in foundations, not just program staff, boards themselves. That's when you begin to see the change, and I and I'm seeing that change in many foundations, and both and especially at both the ones that I worked at. And just in the last six months, um, it's been remarkable to watch. Interesting. Thanks, William. Kiana? 
Yeah, so both Mary and William have talked about the need to practice equity. And I just want to underscore how important that is because there's really no point of arrival. You know, just like you practice medicine, we practice equity uh, and we have to um, really be intentional and develop new competencies and new ways of being, new behaviors, new ways of thinking to really um, actualize equity. So um, fortunately, before I even arrived, um, Health Board has long had a commitment to equity, uh, including racial equity. So 53% of our board of directors are, are people of color. Uh, about 48% of our staff are people of color. Before I arrived, our board sanctioned the creation of an ad hoc equity committee uh, because we wanted to embed equity as part of our organizational ethos. Um, primarily because half of our funding uh, to our partners in the community are serving a target population of people of color. More than half are, are people of color who are served by our fund. So representation is important and I would say it's the basics. And so from Health Forward's uh, vantage point, we've got really good bones when it comes to representation. Uh, we are now working uh, to <clears throat> deepen our commitment to that. Uh, we are currently undergoing a comprehensive equity assessment of all of our policies, um, all of our, our grant making, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, internal policies. Um, Mary hit the nail on the head when she said it starts internally. You have to, you know, be the change you want to see first. Uh, so we're working to do that. So we'll, we'll get um, the findings from that assessment around the um, January timeframe. But we've already begun to look um, at our grant making and even in the investment management space, two areas where I would like to be very intentional about um, deepening our commitment to equity. So today, uh, about based on 2019 funding, 18% uh, of our funding um, went to organizations led by and predominantly serving people of color. So we grant make um, about 20 million a year. So that's roughly 3.5-ish million dollars in 2019 went to orgs led by people of color. Um, the question is, why is that important? Um, so we know that organizations who are led by people of color and have an agenda that focus on people of color are proximate to the problems that we seek to address. They possess the answers and the solutions in both their lived experience and their expertise through lived experience and their professional experience to address these issues in partnership with us. Uh, and we want to ensure that we foster philanthropic justice as people of color um, are, have been a huge contributor to wealth creation in this country. And so as uh, stewards of public funding, uh, we are a public foundation, we need to ensure that capital uh, gets into the hands of individuals and communities uh, that are proximate to the issues and have the competencies to develop uh, these vast complexities around health injustices and the issues that our communities serve. Um, today, many organizations led by people of color are challenged with having the networks in philanthropy uh, our challenge um, with trust um, in, uh, by philanthropy, just because they're people of color. Uh, there's bias in every sector in our world and philanthropy is no different. 
and they're also challenged by not having as much unrestricted capital. And so those are the types of things that we need or tools and, and, and changes that we know we need to make to be able to be more inclusive. So my team is working on a um, plan to really include uh, uh, people of color, organizations led by people of color uh, with greater inclusion into our portfolio. Uh, and we just completed a, a design thinking initiative uh, to map out what that might look like. That's fabulous. Julie, Ken. yes, please. Can I, I underscore ahead, something. Of course. So, so something both Mary and Kiana have, have said that I that I think we all have to kind of take to heart in philanthropy, and that is the this this assessment that happens um, mm -hmm. internally that this explicit audit that takes place inside these organizations. Uh, both uh, St. David's, as I was leaving, I was implementing one, and now at at, at Dogwood, I'm implementing one as well. We I think uh, we cannot. Um, do this work as foundations if we don't understand where we are on the continuum mm -hmm. as organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. when I'm talking about, and sometimes we try to relegate it just to programmatic work. I'm talking about how we contract, how we how we conduct interviews, not just bringing people of color, but the conducting of interviews, mm -hmm. how the questions that you ask, everything has to be put on the table. And I think philanthropy is at a moment now where we can actually openly talk about these issues because we've all experienced uh, those things going through interview processes where you you sat there and you were like I don't know if they should have asked that question like that as a person of color and so so everything everything within philanthropy has to be put on this audit and I think uh, I, I'm starting to see more and more of that and I'm encouraged by that but I think we have to call it out explicitly as well yeah, yeah. and I want to build on that because I think it's important for us to say with all the philanthropic capital that we have um, organizations of color have been grossly underfunded. When we looked at the, the numbers in at Hispanics and philanthropy, Hispanic-led and Hispanic-serving organizations, they literally have gotten six, maybe 8% of all the philanthropic dollars, and that number hasn't changed in over, I think, a decade. When you look at African-American-led organizations, the numbers are slightly higher, but it's like eight or 10%. And so you're talking about billions, maybe even trillions of dollars, and 80% of them are still not going to organizations of color. And so it's important, not just that we say to ourselves, what's the analysis, but let's disaggregate the data. Because when you start disaggregating the data, you see how woefully inadequate our funding has been. I know this past year, the Bar Foundation, Bar allocated an additional $4 million to provide it to organizations led and serving people of color throughout greater Boston and throughout the region. And you know more of that needs to be done and not just during COVID. It's like, how are we going to as philanthropy really distribute the dollars more equitably? I'd love to, this is, this is really impressive what you've all done in such a short amount of time. I'd love to ask you, uh, maybe starting with, with, uh, with Mary, what do you think success looks like for these initiatives say, two years from now. Yeah. How will you define success? How are you gonna measure success? Great question. Internally, you have more program officers, more leaders, so pro, you know, presidents, more board members that not only of, are, are of color, but that they represent the communities and the issues that we're trying to resolve. And so for example, when I look at the work we're doing around climate and transportation, you know, I would love to see more people in foundations and on boards 
that are public transit riders. Part of the reason you're starting to see all of these cuts being advocated for public transportation across the country is that those that really use it aren't representing, you know, they don't sit on the agencies, they're not in philanthropy. So that's one indicator of success. I think the second one really is that you start seeing a different distribution of the grant making within philanthropy. The number is too skewed and we have to move the dial. And ultimately, I mean, if we're looking at real success in my strategy, then we have people have access to good transportation. We look at better public health and less asthma rates because we're shifting who's moving around and how are people getting around. And so I think it's multiple levels. It's at the board level, organizational, and at the outcome level, you're starting to see more of the things that all of us say we want to do. Healthier people, healthier communities, less segregation, less sort of people being moved in ways that don't work for them. And I think there are a lot of outcomes we should be looking for. Great, great answer. William? Yeah, um, I think in two years, I, I love the word operationalize. That, that is something that I, I, I lean into in my, my leadership. And I think in two years, if we are, we have clear ways in which we conduct our, our, um, our annual review of, of where our contracts are going, I, you know, I always start internally. Where, you know, who are we getting, who are we partnering with to, to do some of the consulting work? Uh, who does our cleaning service? Um, uh, who are we renting from? Who are we buying from? Um, those, those kinds of things. And, and you have checklists by which you, and benchmarks that you are asking yourselves without any question, without there being, oh, did we do that this year? Operationalizing that. Uh, you've changed the way in which you are actually conducting your searches and your interviews uh, for, for people of color and people feel differently. You begin to kind of see that, that people come into their organization, come into these foundations, their full selves, not trying to be a person of color uh, who identifies with the majority culture. Um, I want to see people coming into these organizations feeling affirmed that if they are, are from uh, an indigenous population, that they can be fully themselves inside that organization. Um, and it shows up uh, mm -hmm. in meetings. It shows up in, 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 uh, in ways in which we kind of push out press releases. People will know that the culture is different inside the organizations. And then finally, for me, the, the big one Mary talks about, um, uh, the, the ways in which the money flows. You, uh, it, it, those numbers, I've seen those numbers the way she was talking about them. It, it's upsetting um, that uh, in a place like Texas, where I came from, I just have to be honest, that, that uh, I went to Texas four and a half years ago, expecting that I was gonna be falling into Latino-led organizations and I was gonna be working with Latino um, uh, program officers and VPs. And I found that in a state that's 40 plus percent Latino, I probably found about three Latino uh, uh, folks inside foundations. Uh, so I don't know what the percentage is, but it's appalling. And then the, then the way the, the, the dollars led. And so in two years, we will see a clear way in which we are supporting organizations led by people of color in a more intentional way. And we are benchmarking ourselves and asking ourselves, how are we gonna do it better the following year? Mm -hmm. Thanks, William. Kiana? So um, in, in a couple of years, internally, uh, similar goals that Mary and uh, William have laid out in terms of increasing uh, the number of organizations led by and serving people of color in our grant making for sure, vendors and suppliers, 
Um, I love uh, William's mention of staff being able to bring their whole selves to work. So we catalyzed uh, our equity journey as a, a team this year, um, starting with the um, Intercultural Development Inventory or the IDI, which staff took just to understand um, their uh, cultural adaptability and develop a level of self-awareness. Um, and also coupled that with the Race Equity Institute trainings or REI trainings, where we really began to learn about what does being an anti-racist organization look like? What is racism and how uh, might we impact that structurally? So our team understanding that and feeling empowered to uh, bring all of themselves to work. Culture is hugely important. And I think we have to create the environment and the space for that internally if we uh, plan to be effective in helping our partner organizations to that end. Uh, my personal goal is also to diversify our assets under management. So this is one component where uh, philanthropy focuses a lot on grant making, but not necessarily in who is managing our capital. So uh, my goal is to really diversify our assets under management and include that, uh, ensure that more women and uh, people of color uh, asset managers are included uh, in our portfolio and to benchmark that. Um, our finance and investment committee will be focusing uh, on that next year as that'll be one of the outcomes that we know uh, from our comprehensive equity assessment. Externally, it's all about health and health outcomes. So I'm really thinking about health equity and uh, decreasing uh, the level of health injustice that we see in chronic disease outcomes uh, and life uh, expectancy as we have about a 15 to 20 year gap uh, just in a two mile radius in Kansas City. Every city has that economic and racial dividing line. Ours is Troost Avenue. Um, so really focusing on health disparities, which I call injustices, I think it's more fitting uh, at uh, a macro level for our population. Julie, that, that yes, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. asset Absolutely. manager, the asset manager work is the final frontier in philanthropy. If, mm -hmm. if you can begin to shift even 5%, we're talking about billions of dollars uh, being managed by people of color. And, and I, I would I will track that and, and hope uh, uh, the best for, for, for the organization, Kiana, as you move that work forward. That is tremendous work. Yeah, it's tremendous work. And I think the first step for us as an organization is learning and discovery. So in two years, we expect to have a policy around that. And we expect to at least have some incremental steps uh, where we've begun to diversify uh, at least a couple. Uh, we've got to start somewhere. But today we're at ground zero. So um, there's many steps on this journey and we have to get started. I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, divert for a minute because William said something that, um, that I'm very interested in here and I'd love to have both your um, opinion, William, as well as Kiana and, and Mary. So our, you know, our firm does a lot of DEI work. Um, I do a lot of DEI work as, a, as the head of the not-for-profit practice here. What advice do you have for us in terms of how we can better approach um, these really important searches? How, how can we better partner with you? Wow, I, you know, Jay, uh, I've thought a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> and I'm so, I'm so happy that that's where with Kiffer is. I, I'm really pretty pleased with that. Um, um, 
and personally, because you you actually recruited me, I, I felt very affirmed. So I will say that. Good. But um, um, I think one of the things as I've looked at it across the, the, the industry is it's all about networks. And, and to, without assigning blame, I think people go where they know people. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the, the, the thing that I said at the very beginning about intentionality. And so to be effective in this work, to be effective in recruiting executives, and, and you, the, the, there has to be an intentionality around saying, I going to a, saying, I know my network is deficient. I have to go out of my way to find those uncommon leaders. Um, I never would have gotten in philanthropy if, if the Maryland's Babcock Foundation wasn't looking for an uncommon leader. I didn't have the pedigree. I didn't go to the right university. I didn't work in the right spaces. I was working in rural black communities and they were intentional about that work. And so, uh, um, and I think I've done pretty good uh, because they gave me a chance. And I think finding um, the, those networks that, of the uncommon leaders that are effective, that are gonna be outstanding in the work of philanthropy, especially at the executive level, that's, that's where I'm focusing on right now. Um, you'll begin to kind of see uh, a shift in the ways in which the people that you're going to be engaging and the people that you'll have those those introductory conversations with uh, moving them forward. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, William. That all Mary? Yeah, that makes so much sense. One of the things I would recommend a few things. Number one is that more search firms actually do their internal assessment so that they're much more aware of the biases that they have. And I say that because I've seen really good candidates be eliminated from searches because there was some bias at play. Either they didn't fit the right you know, criteria, they didn't go to the right school, they weren't known in the right networks, or um, the resume somehow didn't look or sound the way you know, a headhunter would. And so having that initial work around DEI and anti-bias, I think would enable a search firms to, to broaden their tent. And then secondly, the other thing I think is really important is for search firms to really set some benchmarks. If you know that you are trying to recruit a diverse pool, then one of the benchmarks should be even till the end of that search, you should have a benchmark that's maybe 50% of your candidates need to be of color, even when you get to the end of that search. Because if you're not intentional about it, there's just too many biases along the way that eliminate really perfect candidates. And then thirdly, I think many of the firms need to start recruiting people of color that, that come from diverse backgrounds and they have diverse perspectives. And I think some of that will, there are more strategies, but those three could really help in terms of the work that search firms are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wanna be additive here. They've covered um, much of what I would say. Um, the principle, there's many principles of equity, but one that I live by is getting proximate to the issue that you're looking to address or improve. Um, and William talked about our, our networks. Um, and we oftentimes, um, I oftentimes hear search firms say, well, we just can't find people of color. Uh, and that enrages me <laughs> when I hear it, to be honest with you. Um, because we're not scarce. We really are not scarce. Uh, we're in great number. It's all about the bubbles that we live in. We need to do some bubble bursting mm -hmm. um, in terms of how many people of color are in your personal network. That's where we get our much of um, your sourcing is from individual networks, word of mouth, 
as well as your, of course, your recruitment. But even in that online recruitment and social space, are you proximate to black and brown channels that will help unearth um, those individuals? Uh, the Leverage Network, uh, I'm a, a fan of that organization. Um, it is an organization that's focused on um, developing um, women of color in healthcare uh, for corporate board seats. Uh, there are many other organizations like them. So getting proximate to organizations like the Leverage Network and others, developing relationships uh, within those networks that can be great feeders uh, and people who can help inform um, what um, our challenges are and what the strengths are for people of color in interacting with search firms like yourselves. The other thing that I say is around um, board development for organizations. Uh, that is a significant gap that I see uh, in Kansas City. Um, you know, we're not, a, we're not a city that has, um, you know, high amounts of people of color like in Atlanta or Washington, D.C., um, but we are still in good number in terms of the uh, people of color who were here that's professionals. And what I'm looking at on boards is we have the same 20, 25 Black people being asked to serve on every board in Kansas City. Uh, and what I often say is, you know, I'm not the only one <laughs> that can serve on your board. Here's a list of 25 people you can go talk to. Who do you want me to introduce you to? I think there is an assumption of scarcity uh, for people of color and that, that's just not true. So working uh, on board development pipelines to ensure that people of color are represented um, at levels of governance as well. This is really, really, really great information. Um, really appreciate this. And how do we address, one more question about search and then we'll just go back to the agenda. How do we, and this is a big question, how do we address the, the subject of implicit bias with search committees? Well, I think everyone on the search committee has to be aware, you know, that, that they have an implicit bias. Um, so perhaps starting that with one of the tools, Harvard has one and so many other, implicit bias test for the search committee and for the firm uh, and people who are involved in that process or everyone being aware of it um, and having individual development plans to be held accountable for addressing uh, those implicit biases. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's one place to start is self-awareness um, and uh, being bold and courageous to call it out when we see it when we see it surfacing because so many people are unaware uh, that a bias is reflecting uh, in uh, their assessment of a candidate's fit. I wanna build on that point Kiana's making when we've done internal hires or we've hired search firms, we do have um, an, an sort of a bias screen. We ask ourselves a set of questions before we start the search um, if you're asking those questions in the midst or after the fact, or you say, well, why didn't you have any candidates? You've done it too late. And so being able to do that assessment early before you start your search, it enables you to, to, to just at least have a second layer or a, another set of eyes or a different perspective before you even begin the search. I mean, I found that just incredibly helpful. And like I said earlier, all of us bring bias. It, it may look different, but just being aware that we all bring bias and checking that ahead of time, I think is a really good antidote to some of the issues we see at the back end when we're seeing searches happen and there aren't enough people or, or there aren't enough people of color or somebody isn't a fit. 
I mean, that's all bias when you start talking about fit and scale and does a person speak in the right way and just being aware of that and using the right assessment tool in advance, I think can go a long way. The only thing I'll, I'll add to that because they, they said it all, but the one thing that I'll add is um, do not leave it to the person of color on that committee to bring it up. Yeah, um, I agree. Totally. Too often uh, those folks are left to, to be the ones to be the voice. And so I, I, I would say do all of that, but say person of color, you don't have to be the one that said that in, in this committee. Okay. So this is a very, very good, um, this is very good feedback that I'm going to bring back to the firm. Um, to get back to the issue that we were uh, that we were talking about, I would love to hear from all of you. What advice would you have for foundations that are just beginning this journey? How would you how would you advise them? How would you advise them to prioritize the work? And maybe I'll start, William. I'll start with you. Um, um, that's a really good question, Julie. Um, I think the I think the, the the one thing that I would I would say first is um, this is not. Uh, you know, oftentimes we'll say, well, in quarter one, we're going to do X. Um, um, this is not a quarter exercise. This is, this will take many years. I, I experienced that uh, at, at all the foundations that at, they started at one place. And by the time I left, they were, they were maybe just two steps away uh, from the beginning. And so, and those were years that I spent there, but they were consistent. And so the advice to organizations, the advice to philanthropy is that this is going to take a long time. That's one thing. I think the I think the other thing is um, have people of diverse minds, of diverse ethnic backgrounds and cultural backgrounds in leadership roles, not just programmatic roles or administrative roles. They have to be in leadership because that's where power resides. And then the last thing, um, more importantly than just leadership inside the organizations, uh, who sits on the board? Uh, those boards have to begin to reflect um, um, the work that, that's happening on the ground because those voices in the boardroom are gonna be the ones who hold the, the organization accountable ultimately and hold the executive leadership accountable. Mm -hmm. that's, that's terrific. Kiana? Well, this is fresh for me because we are nascent in our right. right? So I'm kind of um, speaking to myself here, uh, maybe a memoir of what I would have done differently <laughs> this year, but, um, one of the uh, articles that I've, I read with our board, um, it's a nonprofit quarterly article. It's called Six Leadership Imperatives for uh, Foundations and Racial Equity. Um, and one of them is what William brought up. It is, it's, a, it's a journey, not a sprint. Uh, there are no quick fixes uh, in terms of equity and inclusion. Um, the other thing that it uh, notes is prepare for the mess. Um, this conversation is, can be, and often is emotionally charged and intellectually challenging. Um, oftentimes we are combating our own narratives, you know, uh, which uh, don't mean they're true in terms of social constructs. Um, and all of that evokes a lot of emotion and mess and preparing for that expected, but also have mitigation strategies around it. Uh, the importance of both equal board and staff engagement um, are critical. Um, so we um, probably had a more accelerated pace given the social and political climate uh, this year and the health injustices that we've seen in the, pan in the pandemic. 
And so there, I think there was a heightened level of rigor and resolve for us this year because of it, even though we had a foundational commitment, but not everyone is prepared for that level of acceleration. Uh, and so taking time to understand where uh, your board is uh, relative to the conversation. Um, and sometimes you have to slow down to go faster uh, mm -hmm. is one point of advice. Uh, William mentioned the power in terms of leadership. And I think that making sure that you have a significant um, um, people of color in leadership and on your board, but don't underestimate the power of the staff. Uh, because if they are not on board and they don't get it and they don't get the why, then it's not going to go anywhere. Hmm. That's great advice. M Mary? Yeah, my colleagues have already said a lot of what I was going to. So I'll add that um, when foundations that are just entering the DEI space are actually very fortunate because other foundations have already, have already begun to pave the way. So as you look at foundations like Ford and some of the work we've done at Barr and Hewlett and some of the big national foundations, they've been leaning into this the last several years. So there's a lot to learn from. The piece of advice I, was, I would also give is get help. If you are assuming that you can do all of this work by yourself, it doesn't matter if you are a board or the president or you're on a program team, if you are assuming that you can do this all by yourself, you are going to run into problems. So find really good consultants. There are a lot of them out there. There are a lot of the foundation affinity groups are doing this work and they really understand what it means to do it. And then lastly, if you've done a DEI journey or in your midst in, in, of a DEI journey and everything either feels the same or you're too comfortable, you haven't done enough work. So this is coming back to Kiana's point. It's there's a messiness and a discomfort and that's where you're gonna start seeing the shift and the change happen. And you just have to be patient and make room for that to occur because it will, it will need to in order for you to get to the other end, which is an organization that is more equitable and hopefully at the end, really anti-racist. Have any of you just, uh, just last question, any mistakes that you've, I mean, this is messy work. This is tough, messy, can, as you said, intellectual, emotional work. Any mistakes that you wanna share or huge successes and what you've learned from, you could talk about a mistake or a success or watching others. You know, for, for us, uh, we, we took our board through um, a day long Race Equity Institute groundwater training that was very helpful. Uh, but one of, a, a big miss was not just level setting everyone on what does racism mean and what does anti-racism mean and look like. Mm -hmm. um, so I have um, a couple of wonderful board members who just are really were jolted by, you know, how board's not racist, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And what does anti-racism mean? That, does that mean we've been racist? Great questions fair questions and we get to throwing these words around uh, and we assume that everyone's on the same page. So really slowing down uh, to say, you're right, let's spend some time on that. You know, systemic racism is not about white hooded people who are, are just wanting to hurt and harm uh, black or brown people. It's about systems and structures uh, that advance white people while oppressing people of color. And anti-racism is the opposite. 
and so how do we as an organization contribute to a community's ecosystem of systems and structures and policies that advance the health and the well-being of black and brown people that's a shift and they're like oh okay i can i can get with that <laughs> <laughs> so just an assumption that everyone knows what we're talking about um, was uh, uh, an error that I made this year. Interesting. Yeah. Well, William? I've been sitting here thinking about which mistake to talk about. There have been, <laughs> been several. Um, I think, I think the, 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 the one that I actually talked a little bit about, uh, but I learned from it, is this understanding about how people bring their full selves to, to, to the inside organizations or not bring their full selves. Because I've always been a person that, that you know, felt of the power, felt in, had, and felt like I had the power myself to, to be who I was, but didn't set the same expectation for the organization. And when I found that people felt like they couldn't bring their full selves, I just, it just was shocking to me that, that people we're, we're feeling oppressed inside organizations that we thought we were creating that were unoppressive. And so, so being intentional about making sure that the culture of the organization is what you think it is, not what you say it is, um, uh, but, but what you think it is. And so uh, that the part about staffing that, that Kiana talked about, staff can slow things down if they don't feel fully engaged. And so um, don't make the mistake of assumptions about where you think your organization uh, is on the continuum um, and making sure that everybody feels like their voice is being heard um, and finding ways to operationalize that as well. Mm -hmm. Great, Mary? For me, I think one of the lessons learned or things I wanna lift up is um, there's many of us are well-meaning and when we think about even our allies and you know, there's, there's a lot of good intentions but if you don't really understand what your biases are, you are being complicit in ways that reinforce a lot of the racism that we are all trying to dismantle, right? So really understanding what does it mean to be complicit? How do you unravel that? And then how do you move from a place where you are being complicit to where you're really being anti-racist? And, and having to sort of have those conversations and again, working with experts that can really begin to unpack it and, and, and say, here are the different phases and here's how you will know when, when you are making progress towards becoming an anti-racist organization, for me feels really important. And then the other piece of that that we've seen play itself out and we're sort of trying to walk through it is like, those are hard conversations. And when you start talking about how you were implicit, you have to deal with white fragility. And so being able to say, well, let's, let's unpack that as well. And how do we make sure that in the process of addressing white fragility, that doesn't become the dominant conversation, right? Or it doesn't become detracting. And so just getting into the muscle of getting us to just get uncomfortable and deal with these ugly truths and say, we don't want to be complicit. Let's look at in ways we shouldn't be. I think for me, that's like something I want to lift up because all organizations that are going through this journey will struggle in those areas. I, I love that point, Mary. I absolutely love that point. And it's something as a, as a white person that I've been struggling with as well. And so I, I just, I, I, this conversation has been so incredibly rich. And, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I, I thank all of you. Um, I think one of the silver linings of this pandemic and social awareness is it's forced all of us to take a deeper look into this and to really establish a very meaningful agenda around uh, DEI 
And I think the commitment that you all as uh, organizational leaders, as foundation leaders, will pay great dividends in the future. So um, again, I wanna thank the three of you for, for joining this conversation. It's been incredibly rich. Um, look forward to more and uh, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to visit wikifer.com to learn more about our expertise in leadership and view our open searches. You can follow Wikifer on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Wikifer. Wikifer makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and the recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Reliance on the information provided in this podcast is undertaken at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Third-party materials or the contents of any third-party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of Wikiver. Wikiver assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein. Wikiver makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. Wikiver expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.